to uh, be with you guys today and to be back uh, for this service today. And I'm glad Brother Chris um, made it clear this is a seminar. Um, after uh, some of those messages, uh, I'm not preaching a sermon, okay? So don't expect a sermon. Uh, I do want to start, however, with a passage of Scripture because I believe it's important uh, for a basis of what we're going to talk about. I did this seminar um, a little over a year ago, maybe, at, uh, at another uh, state gathering, sort of like this. And a guy came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, when I saw the seminar title and saw that you were going to be speaking on making a wow factor in your church, he said, that kind of made me mad. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And he said, but after I heard it, he said, I wish all our churches could hear that. He said, it's not what I expected you to be, be saying or, or talking about. And, and uh, here, here's what it's really about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm, I'm just going to read this passage. I'm not exegeting this passage. I'm not preaching on this passage, but this is the foundation for what I'm going to be talking about. The Apostle Paul says, for though, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19, for though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law and uh, as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I may, might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. And what the Apostle Paul basically is saying there, and what he is trying to, to drive home, and I think that is important for us, is that basically we need to know who it is that we're trying to reach. In other words, I'm not going to go to Brazil or I'm not going to go to Africa or I'm not going to go to China and, and speak my language and do everything that I do that, I, that, are, that, that fits within my preferences and what I like to try to expect to reach people of different cultures. It, you can't do that. And they don't speak the same language. They don't understand where you're coming from. There's all kinds of different uh, cultural expectations and, and what have you. And I think that, that we've kind of lost sight of that in America because we think that uh, as in America that we're all the same. But as uh, Brother Chris said, we're not all the same. We're very diverse. Culture is very diverse, even within the United States of America. You can go to the West Coast. I grew up in Southern California in my early days of my childhood and uh, spent uh, all of my, my years growing up there. Uh, then I spent 33 years in Oklahoma, and I can guarantee you that the culture in Oklahoma is a lot different than the culture of Southern California. When I got to Oklahoma City for the very first time, I thought, I am in the boondocks. Oklahoma City. It was, then it was probably 400,000 people, and I thought, this is the smallest town. And then God, in his sense of humor, took me from there, moved me to Ada, Oklahoma, town of about 12,000 people, and I thought, boy, it cannot get any smaller than this. And God said, oh, just wait. <laughs> Six and a half years later, he moved me to Sulphur, Oklahoma, population 5,000, and I quit saying it can't get any smaller than this. Then God started moving us back. Now we're in Nashville, Tennessee, population 86 million. I don't know what's not really. It feels like it when you're on the interstate. But my point is, is that the culture in every one of those places have been greatly different. And not only is just the culture different, but I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a new group of people in town. And this new group of people in town 
are what we used to call the unchurched. But there's a, a, another new group of people in town that I call the post-church, and that's a word I made up, I think. I haven't heard anyone else use that word, but they're post-churched. And what that means is they're over church. They're done with church. Many of them have been to church, like many of our children and grandchildren. They grew up in church, and they walked away. Why? Well, I don't want to get into all of the you know, caveats of the millennial generation, but uh, I'm mainly talking about the generation beginning with the millennials in around 1982 and, and after that. We saw, we saw a real shift in the thinking and the worldview of people. In fact, you can talk to any millennial, 1982, or like I said, more, more recent, and now into what they're calling the iGen, after the millennials, and you can ask them some basic questions that you won't believe their answers. And I've got all kinds of statistics that I could tell you, and I'll tell you a few, but I'm not going to get into all of them uh, that, I, that I think is going to surprise you. But the thing about the millennial generation and after that is that they grew up in an era that now is called the postmodern era. We grew up in the modern era. Okay. Basically, the, the difference in the modern era and the postmodern era, and there's a lot of technical differences, but basically, I believe it hinges on the one aspect of the word truth. You see, those that grew up in modernity in the modern age just took truth for, for truth. There is, a, there is such thing as absolute truth. We know that certain things are just certain things. But then a generation came up that was taught a different worldview, and that different worldview is, ah, truth is kind of fuzzy on the edges, and as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, or as long as you know, you're not infringing your rights on someone else, then truth is not really truth. When truth became relative, the worldview shifted and it changed into what now is called the postmodern era. I read a study one time, and, and it's been some time ago, but I read a study about teenagers asked the question, is there such thing as absolute truth? And 70-something percent said no. They believe there are certain cases where it's okay to tell a lie or to do certain things that, you know, keep, a, keep something from somebody or, or whatever. And I think that uh, that's pretty evident and pretty obvious in the world in which we live today. And so... I think that what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this passage and what's important for us to understand, and I'm going to get into the meat of this here in just a moment, but I feel like it's important to kind of understand uh, why I believe this is so important. Uh, because I, I think that if, if, if we just go on what we've always done and go on what we've always believed and go on what we've always known, we're going to continue to get the same results that we're getting now, which is not the best result. And so I've looked at this, I've, I've thought on this, I've prayed on this, I've, I've read on this now for many, many years. I, I have tried to be a student of, of the church and trying to figure out our culture. Um, I, I've, I've done a lot of study in the, the generations and, and how generations perceive certain things and all of these types of things. And, and, and I, when I read statistic, it, statistics, it just amazes me at where we are today. And we have to understand these things if we're ever going to shift into a place that we can do something better than what we've done before. Let me just share some of these things with you. 
Because in the, in this postmodern era that we're living, living in, um, the, 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 the kind of catchphrase or catch word is the word tolerance. But you know as well as I do, they don't really want tolerance because they're not very tolerant of our beliefs, right? And so they want tolerance, you know, to go to a, a certain way. But, but 48% of Americans qualify as what I call the post-church, which means they know about Christ, they know about Christianity, but they have either walked away or they have chosen just not to believe it. 72% of Americans say they have no religious preference. 72%. They're now what's referred to as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. You've heard that term probably before. They say that the Word of God is important. It's a good collection of writings. The Word of God is, is valuable for certain things. But those same 72% of people do not believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God. 27, this one's going to surprise you, I think, and I hope it does. 27% of millennial non-Christians believe that the Bible is a dangerous book of religious dogma used for centuries to oppress people. That's a quote. You say, you're making those things up. Where, where are you really getting that? I'm getting that from the research done in 2016 by the Barna Group, and it's called The Bible in America. You can look it up. The Bible in America, the changing landscape of biblical perceptions and engagement. In fact, I hope you do look it up because there's a lot more information in that study that will just absolutely have you shaking your head. So I hope I have your attention. I hope we understand the severity of what we're talking about today because this is very important. But if your church is like the vast majority of churches in America, we've kind of blinded ourselves to a lot of these issues and a lot of these things. In fact, if you're anything like me, I used to believe and I used to think, well, the problem isn't us, the problem is them. They've changed and, well, that, that may be true. But we can't look at it like that. We can't just say, well, the world's different, and we just, we, if we just preach like we need to preach and preach the truth and pray harder and, and all of that, then eventually we'll break down the walls and, and, and they'll come. No, I'm not sure that's really how it's going to work. And so I think that in the modern era, maybe some of the things that we tried would work, but now I think what we're doing is not working. And so we need, to, we need to pray, we need to preach. Those are certainly things that we, that we need to do. And I, am, I hope you understand that I would never, uh, anytime I talk about any of these types of, th- uh, of things, uh, th- the message is the Word of God. And that does not change. It cannot change. It will not change. It is the Word of God. But our methods, our ideas, our, our practices sometimes need to adjust or change. And that's where the idea of this whole thought of making a, your, how, to, how to create a wow factor in your church, uh, because uh, when those in the community do decide to go to church, and that's really what we're talking about. There's a, a lot of stuff before this, but this is what we're talking about. But if somebody outside the church, say on Easter Sunday, or they have a death in their family, or they have some life crisis, and, and there's some, some kind of problem, and they decide to, to go to church, your church is only one of many choices that they have when it comes to attending church. Because the truth of the matter is, millennials and, and most uh, people their, their age and, and, and younger, 
It means nothing to them that you're free will Baptist or that it's Methodist or that it's Assemblies of God or that it's Mormon or that it's Jehovah's Witness. It's just a church to them. They don't, know, they don't have the foundational understanding that we had when we grew up. And we all had some kind of a religious context. Well, Grandma was a Baptist, or I grew up Free Will Baptist, and, and you know, we have generations of, of preachers in our family. Uh, most people don't have that, that kind of a legacy. And so your church is only one of several choices that a person uh, would have if they decide to go to church. And so uh, what I believe is, is important is that when somebody walks in, or I start to say walks through the door, but when they drive into your parking lot, they need to begin to have a good experience at your church. Because if they don't have a good experience, it's not likely they're going to come back. And so Tom Rayner did a study a few years ago, and he said that first-time guests expect four basic things when they visit your church. First of all, they expect unfriendly people. Now you say, oh, our church is friendly. I've traveled around this denomination quite a bit. Um, I've been in, I, I used to think a lot until I started hanging around with David Crow and Jim McComas, these guys that have really traveled a lot. But I've been in over 200 Free Will Baptist churches um, in the last 10, 12 years. And I found out that most churches are real friendly to each other, to people that they know, to their little groups, to their, you know. Uh, oftentimes I'm preaching at church, whatever I come up, I'm sitting on the front row, they have their meet and greet time or whatever, and if I don't move and go shake hands with somebody, nobody ever comes up and shakes my hand. I'm the visiting preacher. And, and, and it, churches are not really taught to be friendly a lot of times. We're friendly to each other, but, but we're not friendly when, when, when other people come. In fact, a lot of times it's, who's that? I don't know that person. You know that person that came in? And so instead of, you know, instead of being a friendly church, a lot of times we're, we're unfriendly churches. Second thing that most unchurched people expect, your church, uh, expect out of your church is that your services are going to be boring. Just reading you the research. The answer to that, don't let your service be boring. We'll talk more about that in a second. The third thing that unchurched people expect your church to be or to do is that the preacher is going to harp on money because they've watched some of those services on TV and when they tell you, you know, give and God will bless and give and you can have whatever you want and, and that's a, sometimes what, what, they, what they expect from church. And then the fourth thing is that they expect that they are going to have an uncomfortable feeling when it comes to dropping off their kids. Pretty good things to think about. So how do we create a wow experience? How do, we, how do we do something to exceed people's expectations? Well, there's a lot of things, and I'm going to share with you just a few this morning, and I'm going to move very quickly uh, through these because I can't, I don't have the time to, to really build on, on a lot of this stuff. But I like to, to, to liken it or use as an example to think about, uh, if you can remember back this far, and for me it was a really, really long time ago, but uh, back to your very first date that you had with your spouse. And think, do you remember when you were getting ready for that date? To be honest with you, I don't. I don't remember that. It was 38, 39 years ago for me. I don't remember actually, you know, getting ready for the, for the first date. But I'm sure that when I was getting ready, I would look in the mirror. Make sure my hair was just right. Make sure my clothes were, were just like I wanted to be. I picked out the, the best outfit that I could find in my closet. I made sure that the mud was off my shoes. 
I made sure that, that uh, you know, I'd taken a, taken a shower and put on my deodorant and, and used my breast spray and, and all of that kind of stuff. You just try to do the very best that you can. And I think about that when it comes to the church, that we ought to at least do the very same thing when it comes to bringing people, dating people, if you will. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but when people come into their church, it's kind of like a date. They're trying it out. They don't have any... They don't have any um, uh, ties. They don't have any any obligation to your church, and they can be sometimes brutally honest. Yeah, that's right. And so, what's that personal appearance look like? What's that condition of things really look like? And some of the same criteria that we need to consider for ourselves personally, we need to consider for our churches. And so, let me give you just a few things here that I believe that are important when it comes to creating a wow factor. The the first thing is that we need to make sure that we have an excellence in our appearance. An excellence in our appearance. The best way that I can kind of make you think along these lines is, does your church look like it's expecting visitors? Does it look like you're expecting visitors? The truth of the matter is a lot of churches don't expect visitors. They're kind of surprised when visitors show up. And so they're not ready for visitors. There's no one at the, at the door, or there's no one to help them take their children. There's no one. And I tell you what, I, I'm just going to say this, and this church has done a fantastic job. I mean, even last night, they had guys out there with flashlights directing traffic and, and moving people around. I have not opened a door since I've been here. They open it for you. And they greet you, and they are friendly. And then in the meal and their name tags that identify them and all of that, Brother Todd, you guys are doing a great job great job. Maybe they're just putting on the dog for us. I don't know, but, but I'm telling you, they're, they're doing a good job. They, it, they are expecting the, the guests to come, the visitors to come. But when a visitor comes to your church and they you know, are already nervous about dropping off their kids, remember, according to the Rainer study, they're already a little nervous about that because they're not sure what's going to happen to their kids, and they go back to a room, it's empty. Nobody there, no teacher, no security. They don't know if they leave their kid and turn around that somebody else is going to take them somewhere else or what's going to happen to their child. We live in a sick world that we cannot allow those kinds of things happen. So excellence in appearance, we need to look like we're expecting guests. And folks, it's not that hard to spruce the place up. It's really not that hard. Paint's cheap. Renting a carpet shampoo is cheap. You know, I understand that sometimes you, you can't always have the nicest building and nicest facilities and all of that, but just simply do the best with what, you can, with what you've got. And, and we need to make sure that that pile of stuff is removed. I walked into a church one time, and the, the, you walk in the back doors right by, like the sound booth, by the sound booth similar to this, and you couldn't even see a surface. It was so piled with stuff. And I mean, there was dust so thick on the top of the sound booth rail, and there was music and CDs and all kinds of stuff just all over the place. And that was the first thing you saw when you walked in. And then you walk in, it looks like the place hadn't been vacuumed. You know, those people here last night, they were here vacuuming. A lady was dusting the piano. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. The bathrooms look like sometimes they've, they've not been cleaned. And I don't know how long, Brother Jim tells a story the other day, being in church, got stuck in the bathroom because the door was warped and hadn't been used probably in 20 years. 
I have a similar story. I got locked in a church bathroom one time, and, and I mean, sometimes it looks like, you know, there's the, the, the paper towels that are in the, in the trash have yellowed. They've been there so long. No one ever dumps the trash. No one ever spruces the place up. I could go on and on and on, but, but uh, just think about the five senses, and I'm going to just say this and move on real quick. How does your church look? How does it smell? How does it feel? How does it sound? How does it taste? They say, how does it taste? I mean, are you offering things? Are you offering snacks? When guests come to our home, what's the very first thing that we say? Can we get you something to drink? Would you like something to eat? Would you like a snack? And I think that puts people at ease. It puts people kind of on a, on a whole different feeling. And I, and I think a lot of churches are doing a really good job with this. Uh, and we say, hey, can, can I get you something? Can I, can I show you where uh, the children go? Can I, can I show you where the restrooms are? Is there anything you need? Uh, how can I help you? So excellence in the appearance of place of the place. We need to really pay attention to that. The second thing is excellence in friendliness. I've already talked about this a little bit, but folks, I'm telling you, we have to train our people to be friendly. We have to train them to greet people. And I do a seminar, a whole whole seminar on a greeter training that that I have done for a good number of years. In fact, when I was pastoring, I used it to train our greeters. Uh, But a lot of times, greeters think their job is just to stand there at the door and hand out bulletins. That's not the greeter's job, or at least that's not my expectation. That's not what the, the greeter's job is. The greeter's job is to make sure that they identify guests so that we can get information from them, so that we can uh, you know, get, get a card filled out on them, so we can follow. If we don't know who they are, we can't follow up on them. And so we've got to get information on them. And I know sometimes people just want to come and, and check it out and walk around and kick the tires. And if they want to do that, that's okay. But you can at least do your part to try to do as, the best job that you can to make sure that you get information so that you can follow up and all those sorts of things. And I, I, I tell churches all the time that I believe we need to train, train all of our people to be greeters. Your greeter is not just a, a list that you have in the church office. Every person in your church that's a regular attender should be trained as a greeter. Take a Wednesday night or a couple of Wednesday nights or, or Sunday school time or something when you can get with your adults and train them how to greet people. Because a lot of times we think that just engaging in conversation is saying, hey, good morning, how are you? Thank you for coming. But that doesn't really make people feel at home. That doesn't make people break down the walls. That doesn't really make people feel like they're really welcome. But when you come and say, hey, what is your name? And then you remember it. I'm just as guilty as this because, man, somebody can say, hey, my name is, you know, whatever. And then the second they say it, I think, what was their name? Because we're not paying attention. But if you pay attention... And, and, and you say, hey, you know, my name is Brad Ransom. What's your name? And they say their name, and you remember it. And then you say, well, we are so glad to have you today. Were you meeting someone here? Or are you just here by yourself? Would you like to sit with me and my wife? Could, can I get you something? Would you like for me to show you where uh, you can get some, some water? Or if you need to use a restroom, can I, can I take you to uh, show you where your children need to go? Or, or whatever. And then as you're walking down the hall, hey, Jim, come here. Let me meet, introduce you to my new friend. This is so-and-so. This is their first time at our church. And if that person knows two, three, four people by the time they leave, they're a lot more likely to come back the next week than if they come in, go through the service, and leave and make no connections whatsoever. So we need to make a connection with people through training our people to be friendly. The third thing is that we need to have an excellence in our volunteers. And I've hit on some of these things already. But you know, the church is a pretty unique institution. 
It's the only institution that I know of that is as important as it is, but is run by 99% volunteers. I mean, you know, people at Walmart, they're not volunteers. They get paid to do what they do. And you can't even find an employee when you need one there. But at, a, at the church, everybody's volunteers. So, so how do you get volunteers to do what they're supposed to do? Well, I think it's a misnomer, and I think it really is, is sad that we think, well, they're just volunteers. We can't expect too much. No, we can't. If you're going to volunteer for a ministry in our church, there's some expectations. There's some things that we expect out of you. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations, see if any of this sounds familiar. A preschool Sunday school teacher shows up late, and an irritated mom has had to stay in the room to watch six two-year-olds and misses half of her own class. Or the junior boys teacher calls the pastor 30 minutes before Sunday school to tell him he's not going to be able to make it to church today. He suggests that you just combine the class with the junior girls class. But you know that the junior girls was going to have a special mother-daughter tea in their class. And now what are you going to do with these junior boys? This is always a bad one to share but because it happens in every church. But the lady scheduled to sing the special on Sunday morning says, Well, I haven't had much time to practice, so just listen to the words. <laughs> <laughs> or you've been planning a special church-wide event for months the flyers have been printed the announcements have been in the bulletin the newsletters have been sent out and then three key families come up and tell you oh we're going camping that weekend preacher say where did you get these examples from my church when I was pastoring I know it happens every one of these things happen why it's because we haven't set a level of expectations for our volunteers that I believe we need to set. Now, let me say, we can't go in and say, okay, you're going to, you know, I mean, understand that working with volunteers is a very, you know, unique thing because they work out of the goodness of their heart. They don't get paid. Uh, there's an interesting dynamic with all of that. But I do believe that we can have a higher level of expectations for our volunteers. But one of the things that we have to do is we have to train our volunteers, that's one of the biggest missing pieces in, I think, in most churches is we just recruit volunteers to do things or we take volunteers to do things and we, they don't even really know what's expected of them. They really don't know what they're supposed to do. And so if we will train people, if we will have a system, if we will have a plan to work with our volunteers, it's a lot easier to recruit people, in my opinion, but then also to get them to live up to the expectation that we want them to live up to. Because if I come to somebody and I say, hey, will you work in our children's ministry? Well, I don't, I don't know. What does that mean, work in our children's ministry? But if you come to somebody and say, hey, man, I've been observing and watching you, and kids just seem to be attracted to you. Kids just love you, and I think you would be great to work in our uh, junior church ministry that meets at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. We have a rotating schedule, and you would only have to teach a, a scripture lesson that will train you how to use the curriculum, and, and, and you only have to do that one time a month. And if, if you'd be willing to sign up for six months, we would appreciate it so much. Would you be willing to do that? You've already you've validated and you told them that you think they can do it. You said we'll give you the curriculum, we'll teach you how to use it. And this isn't one of those jobs that you have till Jesus comes back. You can get out of it in six months if you need to. Most people won't if they really fit. But you're just setting a level of expectations for your volunteers, and you're, you're training them to do the things that you're asking them to do. 
And I think that a lot of times the problem is not really getting enough volunteers. All churches say we need more volunteers, but the truth of the matter is it's not that we lack volunteers, it's just we lack recruiting them in the right places. So they need specific tasks with clear expectations. They need training. They need an end date. They need a way to be able to get out of it if things don't work out. And the good thing about that is if they think it's working out, but you don't think it's working out, it's an easy way to say, hey, that six months is over. We've got someone else that's going to step in, and you've averted a serious potential problem. The last thing is that we need an excellence in programming. And what I mean by that is that we simply need to plan. Now, if you know me, I, I, I'm a planner. Sometimes I overplan. I overthink things a lot of times. But there's been too many times when I've gotten myself in trouble for underplanning. So now I tend to overplan everything. But let me just say this, and I've heard Brother Jim McComas say this: there is no excuse for poor planning. There's just not. And, and I know we get busy. I know things happen, and no one's perfect. I was not a perfect pastor. Um, I'm certainly not perfect in any way. Um, I know that those things happen, but, but I'm saying that when it comes to our church services, especially our Sunday morning service and the things that we're doing, we have got to make sure that we are thinking through everything. I remember a couple of times when I was pastoring Sunday night service, we come back to church, we're going through the service, we call the ushers, come forward, oops, no offering plates. Where's the offering plates? Oh, they forgot to bring them in, you know, after Sunday morning. What is that? It's poor planning. Now, it's a little thing. I understand that. But, but it's, it's some of those things that when there's that awkward silence, when someone's going back to find the offering plates, right. and the pastor's, well, let's see. Um, well, and the, I mean, it's just, it, it's just a killer for your service. And so we've got to just think through things, work through things. I've got a good friend that goes over to his, his pastor, still a pastor, been in the same church for 30 years, and, and he goes over to his sanctuary every Sunday morning at 5 o'clock and preaches his sermon to an empty building. Now, I have never done that personally. It's not something that I, that I have done, but he says it helps him think through his sermon when he verbally says it. And he said every Sunday when he does that, he thinks, man, that, that's awkward. That didn't come out right. I, I'm gonna, I need to not say this or I need to say that or whatever. And, and if that works for you, it's because that's, that's planning. That's just going through it, going through the things in your mind. Run through your service. Look at your order of service. Run through everything you're going to do that day and think about every element. What are we going to need for this? What are we going to need for that? How are we going to make this transition without this awkward silence or without you know, uh, chaos uh, ensuing in the service or whatever? So we've just got just to plan things. Make sure that everything is planned out. Again, it goes back to what Rainer said. Uh, you know, make your services where they're not boring. Church is not boring. We saw that last night, right? That was pretty fun. I mean, church can be fun. It can be exciting. There's nothing, you know, about church that should be, that should be boring or leave people, uh, make people leave expecting or wanting something more. We should be able to give them everything they need while they're here. And so, you know, what we need to do is just, again, make sure everything's planned out. Make sure everybody knows their responsibilities, Instead of, you know, calling the ushers and then two or three guys trying to figure out who's going to do it today or whatever, getting up and scrambling around trying to, to get up and, and all of that. And make sure that they're designated and they're where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. Make sure everybody knows their responsibilities and then have high expectations. And if you have high expectations, 
then other people will have higher expectations. Making sure that everyone is prepared and, and you can't go and, and to their house during the week and make your Sunday school teacher study. I understand that. You can't, but you can provide them the tools. You can do everything that you need to do to make sure that everything is done decently and in order. And then simply just don't put up with, with a lower level. If, if it's not getting done, then sometimes you have to have hard conversations with people. Sometimes you have to remove people uh, from, from jobs that they have in the church. And a lot of times I found out when I was pastoring, people that are really doing poorly at their jobs don't really want them anyway. But sometimes they feel trapped. And it's been one of those things where they got it 20 years ago and they couldn't get rid of it since. So they just kind of go through the motions or whatever. But we need to make sure everybody is prepared. And again, I understand things are going to go wrong. We live in a digital age with sound and video and, and all that kind of stuff. Stuff is going to go wrong. But don't make it go wrong just because you failed to plan or that you haven't prepared. Make sure everyone is bringing their A game. And then try to have backup plans for when things do go wrong. Think about your, your services and how they're going to start. Make sure you start on time. Make sure you finish on time or as close to, as you can. You know, people have certain expectations um, and, and, you know, what are, what are you going to do to get people out of your uh, building? How are you going are, are to use exit greeters? And I think that's a, a great idea and a great plan, and I've seen it done here. Uh, they open the doors, and, and most churches don't do that. When the church is over, just everybody's kind of on their own for, at that point. But even people to help you get your kids or help you go and, and find, you know, things that you might need or whatever, especially if you're first-time visitors um, at a church. And then what kind of follow-up plan do you have? And, again, I don't have time to go into this, and I have, a, uh, you know, another whole seminar that, that I do on, on the systems like this. But, but uh, what do you do for follow-up? If you say, well, we, we try to follow up on people when they visit our church, that means you're probably not following up on people. But if you say on Sunday afternoon they get a – text message or they get a phone call or Monday they get a letter from the church and then Tuesday we have a team drop off a gift at their house and then they get a letter from the church on Wednesday and that's a system. Okay, that's a plan. And so you need to have a plan so that everybody knows what it is and it consistently gets carried out every single week. And you say right now, well, we just don't have very many visitors in our church so we don't need to worry about it. Well, that may be one of the reasons why you don't have a lot of visitors. You need to have a plan so that when the very first visitor shows up, you know what to do. That goes down to a, a lot of different things that, again, we don't have time to get into all of those things. But you need to have a plan for, for how you follow up with first-time people. And then I think you need to have a plan. What happens if a person comes back a second time? They're not a first-time visitor anymore. Now they're a second-time visitor. But they still need to be followed up with. Sure. But it's not going to look like... You would follow up with a first-time guest. So what do you do with second-time guests? Then what do you do with third-time guests? If you can get a person to come back three times, chances are going up exponentially every time that they're going to be able to, you're going to get them as a regular attender. So, you know, when, what's the system? What's the plan that you do with first-time guests, second-time guests, third-time guests? What do you do when somebody's been out of church for a month or two months? How do, you, how do you make that contact? You need to have all of those plans for follow-up. They're so important uh, to, 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 to this whole subject of really creating a wow factor in your church. Let me just, just say this, and I'm going to wrap this up. But one of the best things that you can do as a pastor is go be a visitor in somebody else's church. Take a Sunday off, not vacation time, but tell your church, this is part of my pastoral duties, I'm going to do a field study. Get someone to cover your pulpit. 
Don't tell them you're coming and just go to a church and see how you feel. See what you see. See what you notice. I guarantee it will be different than the things you notice at your church because, see, our churches are home. We like home. We're very comfortable at home. I'm very comfortable at home just because it's where I live. But other people may not feel very comfortable in my home because it's my home. But we need to know how other people feel when they come into our home. And so we need to observe what other churches are doing, good things and bad things, and then come back and try to incorporate those things. And a lot of this stuff is just very common sense uh, things. But I, I, don't, I don't care where you live, if it's rural, suburbs, inner city, there's people in your community that need to be reached with the gospel. And they're not just flooding into the church today like they did at one time. And, and, and again, that's another whole subject. But if we're going to reach people, then we are going to have to find out, like the Apostle said, the Apostle Paul said, we're going to find out where they are, and we're going to have to try to meet them where they are. And then we're going to have to you know, expect some things different, uh, look at some things different. Um, again, the, the, the message is the timely, unchanging message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we're going to really impact people in our culture and in our world, we're going to have to figure out how that we can best reach them. And that might look a little different than the way it looks now. We may have to change the way we do some things in our practices or, or whatever. But the question really is, are we willing to do what we need to do to reach people? Or are we just completely comfortable doing it the way we're doing it and getting the results we're getting now? And that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. We've got to know who we're trying to reach, and then we've got to change whatever methods that we need to change in order to reach those around us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, your word to us and, and the challenge uh, that you've given me. And I pray that this, this material is helpful in some way that uh, pastors and church leaders that are here would be able to go back and and, and just um, think about some things that maybe they can do in their community uh, to reach people. But then when people come to their church, Lord, that we would be mindful of just doing things decently and in order in the very best way that we possibly can do to represent you well. Father, I pray that you would just um, bless our churches, give us souls uh, that, that um, we have prayed for, that we have worked for. Lord, we know that you give the increase. But, Lord, I pray that we would remove the obstacles in the way that we would do everything that we can possibly do to reach people and then to bring them into our local churches so that we can disciple them and train them uh, to go out into all the world. So, Lord, we just pray your blessings on everyone here today, and we thank you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.